0: Welcome or welcome back to No Shelf Control, a book podcast. I am your host, Ashert Owen, and today we are discussing a trope that is near and dear to my heart, my favorite trope of all time, Enemies to Lovers. For this episode, I've read four Enemies to Lovers books. I love Enemies to Lovers. One of my favorite K-dramas is Our Beloved Summer, which is Enemies to Lovers to Enemies Again to Lovers Again. I love These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong, I Would Die for the 2005 Pride and Prejudice starring Keira Knightley, Book Lovers, and Beach Read by Emily Henry are some of my favorite books. Much Ado About Nothing is my favorite Shakespearean play solely for Benedict and Beatrice, but with this set of books that I've just read, I'm disappointed to say the least, but we'll get into that later. First, I think it's fair to you to tell you all what I personally think makes a good Enemies to Lovers book. One, I need a slow burn. The enemies cannot suddenly become lovers too early. There needs to be a buildup. I want them to dislike each other for a while, or else they're not actually enemies to me. A while, I would say, is around the 40% mark of a book. Point one, point five. I need heaps of tension as the two toe the line between hate and love. Herod's breath apart while they hiss about how much they hate each other, unable to know if they're going to fight or kiss The tension needs to be through the roof. Two, they need to have a reason, a good reason, for them to dislike each other. It can't be something too petty or something to the level of literal hate crime. I can't describe what the perfect medium is. I just know it when I see it. For example, a bully romance, too much for me. I can't consider that enemies to lovers. Three, when they become lovers, the dynamic cannot completely change. I've read enemies to lovers where as soon as they get together, they're all of a sudden lovey-dovey. They're different characters. Get that shit out of my face, okay? I want banter to continue the teasing, the playful fighting, a little bit of anger. Does that make me toxic? I don't care, because it also makes me right. Four, arguably the most important, and one I've seen way too fucking much for my liking, they actually need to hate each other. But wait, Astrid, they're enemies to lovers. How could they not hate each other? Because it gets retconned. Once the couple gets together, one of them reveals they've never actually hated the other, but loved them so much that it came across as hatred. Somehow. I understand mean flirting. We've all done it before. But mean flirting so hard that the other person thinks you hate them for months? That's unfathomable to me. Okay, so now we know my four criteria for what I consider good enemies to lovers, we can get into the books I read for this episode. First, I read Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuinston. I read every other Casey McQuiston novel except for their debut and I don't know why it took me so long to get back to this one I think because I think it must have been overexposure and exhaustion I read One Last Stop and I read I Kiss Shahara Wheeler the month they came out perhaps because they're both WLW and as a queer woman I want to read more WLW media as I feel MLM is more present in the zeitgeist so I never got around to red white and royal blue until now. Red, white, and royal blue is essentially an alternate universe fake. Alex, the son of the first female president of the United States, and Henry, the spare prince of the United Kingdom, hate each other. The first time they met, Henry was rude to Alex, and since then, they've been on bad terms. At the royal wedding of Henry's older brother, Philip, Henry and Alex knock over the tiered wedding cake, causing both nations to panic. They're forced by their publicists to promote a fake friendship to mend international relationships. They do a series of photo ops, including a visit to a hospital where they end up stuck in a closet during what they believe to be a security threat. Stuck in this tiny closet, Henry confesses that the reason he was so mean during their first meeting was because his father had just passed away. This feels like a detail that Alex, who is shown to be extremely detail-oriented and politically ambitious, should have known. But whatever, I guess. They end their feud immediately. (sighs) They exchange numbers, make in texting and banter flirting. A few months later, Alex invites Henry to his New Year's Eve party. Just to get slightly off topic, there's this weird thing in the novel that isn't present in McQuiston's other novels. where the pacing is like so strange. The novel takes place technically over the course of a year, but everything feels too rushed still. They hate each other in chapter one. They're making out by chapter four. But somehow in these four chapters, about three months have gone by. I don't know, something in the pacing maybe wasn't communicated well, but I was constantly confused by how much time had gone by and what had happened in the time that we weren't shown. Back to the story. They're at this New Year's party, Henry seems upset after Alex kisses his best friend Nora at midnight and he leaves. Alex goes after him and Henry confesses his feelings and kisses him. Henry immediately runs away and the two don't talk for a month, which is only a couple paragraphs with this weird pacing. During these paragraphs, Alex comes to terms with the fact that he's bisexual, which he never knew despite alluding to a sexual relationship in his teens with a high school friend. Henry flies in for a political dinner, where Alex drags him to a locked room the two make out. We're in chapter 5. Technically, we're 30% into the book. However, this feels way too fast for me. They stopped being enemies around 10% in when they got stuck in the supply closet. This breaks criteria number 1 and 1.5. Hereon, Alex and Henry carry on a secret relationship which they hide from the media as well as their friends and family. Alex's mother is running a career election and they don't want to jeopardize that. Alex's sister, June, finds out and reveals that Alex has had a crush on Henry this entire time, even before their first meeting when they began to hate each other. <sighs> Criteria 4. The retcon. You, you see what I mean? Alex's mom finds out about this relationship and tells him that he needs to be 100% certain about Henry and be willing to risk a potential future political career over it. Suspicion gathers around Henry and Alex's closeness this. they begin to go on fake dates with June, Alex's sister, and Nora, his best friend. Just when it seems they're in the clear, their private emails are leaked by Alex's mom's political opponent. Alex flies to England and he, Henry and B, Henry's sister, and Henry's mom confront Henry's grandmother, the Queen of England so that Alex and Harry will be allowed to officially be courting in the eyes of the public. We jump ahead to election night where Alex's mother, a Democrat, wins the state of Texas in the presidency, just weeks after her Hispanic son is exposed for being queer. Alternate universe fanfic, 100%. Now, let's discuss red, white, and royal blue, and if it's an enemies-to-lover, according to me, the obvious enemies-to-lover connoisseur, Astrid Owen. Criteria 1, slow burn. Despite the weird timeline of over a year, they kiss before the 40% mark. So, criteria 1 is broken. 1.5, tension. Only slightly broken. I think Henry and Alex have good tension throughout the relationship. However, it's not the right tension. There's more of a longing tension rather than the, ah, oh, I hate you so much, I want to kiss you tension I was talking about. Criteria 2, good reason for hating each other. Broken. Alex doesn't like him because Henry is rude to him once, but that's not all the real reason he hated him was because we'll get to it criteria three the dynamic doesn't change red white and royal blue surprisingly satisfies this criteria alex and henry are still snarky with each other they tease each other they banter and it doesn't stop until the final page criteria four they can't get retconned failed henry admits that he's always loved Alex since the moment they met at those Olympics where he was so mad at him. Before this, Alex was obsessed with Henry. Arguably had the biggest crush on him without realizing it was a crush. On my criteria scale, red, white, and royal blue gets a 1.25 out of 4.5. The next novel I read for this was The Risk by L. Kennedy. This book has trigger warnings for um, miscarriage and depictions of drug abuse. This isn't my first L. Kennedy book. I read the entire off-campus series, bit of a guilty pleasure. And that series also has an Enemy Celebrities book. I guess these authors never write just one Enemy Celebrities book since, but Quinston also wrote I Kiss Shahara Wheeler, which was a superior Enemy Celebrities book, in my opinion. The plot of the risk, I actually really like Brenna, whose name I thought was Brianna for like 70% of the book. So if I call her Brianna, just know it's the same character. Anyways. Brenna is the daughter of the hockey coach at Briar University. We met some of the hockey players in Briar in the off-campus series, so these two series are slightly connected series or like sister series. Briar hockey's biggest rival is the Harvard hockey team, led by team captain Jake Conley. Obviously, because of their team's rivalry, they hate each other. They want to see each other lose in order for themselves to win. Brenna and Jake first pass when Brenna is stood up for a date. It's established immediately that Brenna is not one for relationships, and neither is Jake. They both like to fool around and have casual casual sex to blow off some steam. Jake warns Brenna to stay away from his teammates as she's been hooking up with one of his younger teammates, who clearly thinks Brenna likes him more than she actually does. Brenna flirtatiously but angrily tells Jake that he's not the boss of her, and if she wants to sleep with this whole team, she will. Jake immediately calls a team meeting where he tells the guys they have to be focused in order to beat Briar later this year. He makes Brenna's boy toy break up with her and tells his other teammates to lay off partying and drugs in order to be in the right headspace and have no distractions. Brenna does not react well to Jake meddling in her relationship. She ambushes him on a night out and flirts with his teammates to let Jake know how easy it would be for her to fuck over his entire team if he messes with her again. One thing I love about Brenna is that she's very openly sexual and no one shames her for it. She's like a siren sometimes. Nobody faults her for it. So far in the novel, we've gotten hints of something in Brenna's past. Her ex, Eric, pops up via text, but she ignores him. She loses her dad and her no longer being close because of an event that we don't know about. For now. Brenna decides to go alone on a night on the town and when some creepy guy won't leave her alone, who else slides into the rescue but Jake. To ward off the guy completely, Drake pretends to be her boyfriend and seals the act with a kiss, which surprises them both. There's always been this undercurrent of like sexual tension between them, but now it's undeniable. The tension is through the roof, it's getting hot in here as Brenna quickly asked what Jake would do if she asked him to go home with her, and Jake asked what he would find if he slides his hand under her dress. Even though this kind of breaks rule number one about needing to hit the 40% mark, it still fits the criteria because there's so much tension. They cut it off though because they find out Briar has just won their game and will be facing Harvard in the finals. Brenna has an interview with the most cartoonish, misogynistic man in charge, Ed, who runs this espn knockoff that's all, only about hockey it's literally called hockey net hockey net <laughs> sorry it just really is called hockey net like i thought like the whole time i was reading it i thought it was hockey net as in hockey network but it's literally hockey net as in the net in hockey <laughs> what the hell <laughs> oh my god brenna is perfect for the job she lives and breathes hockey her dad is a coach she knows all these players stats like the back of her hand The cartoon misogynist doesn't seem interested in hiring her, though, because she's a woman. What he's interested in is the Edmonton Oilers, the team that Jake is signed to play on after he graduates. Feeling her dream job slipping through her fingers, Brenna tells Ed that she's Jake's girlfriend and would be happy to introduce them. Brenna meets up with Jake to practically beg him to play along and promises to do whatever he wants. Jake tells her that he wants a real date with her. For some reason, he doesn't even know. They reach a deal, one fake date for one real one. Brenna's week seems to be getting worse as she finally picks up a call from her ex, Eric. He asks her money for drugs, and when she refuses, he cusses her out. She goes home to find that her basement apartment is flooded, no relation, and she'll have to move back in with her dad for the first time since she started college. The relationship is strained. Her father essentially wants to impose a curfew on her and seems to be boarding on protective and strict. Brenna and Jake go to the misogynist Ed's dinner party where it's literally 1960. The women stay in the living room and discuss homemaking while Ed ushers the men to his study to smoke cigars and drink whiskey and talk hockey. Brenna begs Jake with her eyes to bring her with them, but he ignores her because among the men is one of his future Oilers teammates. When Brenna is rightfully pissed, he detours their trip home to take her to a bar. Over drinks, they talk about Brenna's dad and Jake's coach and how the rivalry seems to be more than just hockey-based. Somehow the conversation switches and they both agree that they have chemistry and kiss. Misogynistic, slate ignored. Brenna does not tell any of her friends about Jake considering all her friends are either Briar hockey players or the wags, wives and girlfriends, of Briar hockey players. Jake and Brenna go on their real date, bowling. Brenna is terrible, but the two have a fun time. They end up in the backseat of Jake's friend's Mercedes that Jake is just barring. If you borrowed my car and you fucked in the back of my car, I would never be your friend again. But that's besides the point. They make out. Jake fingers her. She comes. <laughs> the moment ends when Brenna seems to get another call from Eric. Jake asks if they should do this again. Should we do it again? I don't know. Yes, you do. I grasp her chin, keeping her gazes locked. I repeat the question. Should we do it again? After a long beat, Brenna nods i'm sorry dude, like scenes like this like this bring out my inner romantic i'm like this is so cute on a night out with her hockey friends her seemingly only friends one of the hockey boys cars gets vandalized by harvard and brenna realizes they the hatred that her friends harbor for harvard meaning she cannot tell them about jake jake sneaks up to brenna's room like a teenager in the 269 her dad hears them and brenna refers to jake as just some guy he then tells Jake they're not going anywhere so they should just quit with they're While hanging out with his childhood best friend Hazel, Jake tells her about Brenna ghosting him. Hazel is obviously jealous and she tries to tell Jake that Brenna is just attempting to throw him off his game so that her team can win. But Jake is oblivious so he doesn't realize that Hazel is in love with him. It's so obvious and he doesn't realize it. Like she literally has to tell him at like the 90% mark. He doesn't know this entire novel. In the words of Brenna, you're a man. All men are dumb. Jake is distracted, and everyone around him is telling him that, but he wants Brenna back. At Briar Campus, Brenna gets approached by Hazel, who makes it obvious that she's in love with Jake by telling Brenna offer playing him and telling her to leave Jake alone. Brenna gets a hot call from Hockey Net, on serious, from Hockey Net and tells I thinks she might have gotten the job, only to be immediately let down. On her way out, she meets one of the female anchors, and the two hit it off after calling a male anchor stupid for his high position despite inadequate skills. After realizing that no matter what she did, she wouldn't have gotten hired because Ed is a misogynist, she calls Jake. The two meet up at his hockey arena, where she confesses that he's the first person she called after receiving bad news. She admits that he, she likes him too. They begin to make out when a storm cuts up the lights. The lights quickly come back on and reveal the Harvard coach walking in the doorway. He recognizes her as the buyer coach's daughter but thinks her name is brianna which is the moment i realized her name was not pronounced brianna but it's Brenna. he reveals that he knew brenna's mother because they went to college together keep that in mind brenna and jake go back to jake's place together because it's closer and the storm seems to be getting worse with the power out jake brenna and jake's roommate weston brooks hang out and play board games everyone's getting along great until brenna gets a call a worrying call from eric the group drops everything to find him safely Jake is upset but I think he's a little bit too upset only after Jake finds out that Eric used to be a prospective hockey player he softens because oh my god Jake is a prospective hockey player he could have been Eric I roll you didn't see it but I, I rolled my eyes they save Eric and bring him back to his own home since he's too high to even know where he is then Brenna spends the night at Jake's Jake tells Brenna that if Eric calls her lying in a ditch again she should not pick up and perhaps let him die. What the actual fuck? I hate so much that everyone in this book treats Eric as some sort of bad person instead instead of like a person with an addiction. Yeah maybe for her own mental illness Brenna should distance herself from him but telling her while she's already distressed and just told you that she feels responsible for his addiction that she should just let him die? It feels so fucking heartless this is also the last time we hear about eric so i don't know if he gets help which feels strange to me like he was such a big ha- part of the first half of this novel and then he just disappears like i know it's a book and he is literally a plot point but like it's also based off of a real life thing that people struggle with addiction so just treating addiction like a plot point it just oh I, I don't like it somehow after this conversation they get horny and have sex where Jake says why are you so tight? Are you sure you're not a virgin? Which is such an immediate turnoff for reasons I can't even get into. The next day, Brenna's dad confronts her for being AWOL the whole night and it's clear behind his heart exterior he's just worried about her. Brenna goes to a girls night with all her wags and she's so not like the other girls because she's so pretty without any makeup. On the day of the Briar-Harvard game, Briar seems to be winning until a fight breaks out between players. Briar player unknowingly slept with the Harvard player's longtime girlfriend. The Briar player's wrist got broken, another Briar player and the Harvard player get ejected. Briar's two best players are out despite not starting the fight. Briar immediately starts to lose and Harvard wins the game. The Briar guys are rightfully angry, and during the anger, the Harvard coach goes up to Brenna's dad and says his plan to use his daughter to distract Harvard hasn't worked. All at once, all of Harvard and Briar learn about Brenna and Jake's relationship. None of the briar plays are talking to Brenna anymore and when her dad tells her to break up with Jake she refuses and he kicks her out. She runs to Jake's place and the two have sex. Again is this is the time, this is this the mood, but whatever. She then confesses the backstory that she was alluding to this whole novel. When she was with Eric she got pregnant. She was still in high school at the time. One day during her pregnancy she began to bleed. She calls Eric but he's too busy partying. To come and help her and take her to the hospital that's when she remembers before her that's all she remembers before her dad found her in the bathroom in a pool of her own blood there was so much blood they had to tear out the tile she lost the baby and her relationship with her dad was never the same it's obviously traumatizing what Brenna went through but the thing is that there's no warning that it will be this traumatizing as a reader I went in blind and was kind of shocked Luckily, I've read L. Kennedy before, so I knew the traumatic backstory was upcoming. But what about the people who have never read L. Kennedy and had no idea? The morning after telling Jake her miscarriage slash near death experience, they two have sex without a condom for the first time. Jacobs, Brenna, his good luck charm, which is a big deal. The moment is ruined when they remember that Jake has a hockey practice, and for the first time ever, he's already late a full hour late. Jake begins to question his relationship with Brenna because he's never late and it seems like she's distracting him. A meeting with Hazel where she basically tells Jake that he's too busy for Brenna. Jake continues to question the relationship even though he's pretty sure he loves her. Brenna's on her way to see her dad for the first time since he kicked her out when Jake barges in and breaks up with her. Guys, I hate a third act breakup, especially like this. We haven't seen any problems with the relationship until this chapter and now we're breaking up. It's so sudden and unnecessary. Moving on. Brenna has a conversation with her dad. Finally, she tells him that he knows he's ashamed of her and he instantly starts to cry. This is the part that made me tear up. He drags his knuckles over his face to scrub the moisture away. Is that what you think? Shame glimmers through his tears. Only it's not directed at me. I think he's ashamed of himself. Is that really what I led you to believe? Did I hate you? I'm ashamed of you? heart on my bottom left on my bottom lip If i keep crying if he keeps crying i'll cry too one of us needs to maintain a heart a level head right now you're not christ of course not you wouldn't even look at me afterward because every time i looked to you i remembered finding you on the bed on the bathroom floor in a puddle of blood his breathing goes shallow jesus i've never seen so much blood in my life and you were white as a ghost your lips were blue i thought you were dead I walked in and actually thought you were dead. He drops his face in his hands, his broad shoulders trembling. It was like your mother all over again. When I got the phone call about the accident, and had to go identify her body at the morgue. You know how your Aunt Cheryl is always saying you look exactly like your mother? Oh, well, you do. You're the spitting image of her. He groans. When I found you in the bathroom, you were the spitting image of her corpse. I couldn't look at you after because I was scared i almost lost you and you're the only thing i have in this world that i give a damn about What about hockey i joke weekly hockey is a game you're my life oh they agree to start over and mend their relationship let us wake up brenna spends time with her dad and the briar team who admit they aren't mad at her anymore and we're just mad in the moment brenna's dad tells her the r- the real beef between him and the harvard coach Back in their college days, Brenna's dad went away for a year to play hockey. Harvard coach basically forced himself on Brenna's mom. Brenna's dad drove down just to punch the Harvard coach in the face. After telling her dad about her breakup with Jake and realizing that she still has Jake's good luck charm and his finals and his finals game starts soon, they get in the car and drive to the stadium. Brenna can't find Jake, though, only Hazel. So she gives Hazel the charm so that he she will give it to Jake. Jake's parents come to his game, the first game they've ever come to, and it's so wholesome. Hazel gives him the good luck charm and admits that she was not going to give it to him. Jake is not as mad as he should be, in my opinion. He should be so much madder that his so-called best friend admits to wanting to fuck with his mental state before the biggest game of his college career because she doesn't want him to know that the woman that he loves is there because she's jealous. He figures her instantly. I feel like he shouldn't have. He was madder, Eric, for being mentally ill and having an addiction. Hazel tells Jake her feelings. They agree to be just friends. Before the game starts, Jake talks to Brenna and admits that he's in love with her. She says it back and they're happily together. In the epilogue, Brenna is watching Jake's final game with his parents and Hazel when she gets a call from the female anchor from before, who used to work at HockeyNet. She tells Brenna that she's left the sexist HockeyNet and now works at ESPN and offers Brenna a job, which she happily accepts. That's the end of The Risk. What I really loved about The Risk is that Brenna was a full character. She felt real, like she was in our world. Some fictional universe, she had a whole life and past, and it was well-written, which made me feel for her even more. Jake, in contrast, just felt like three words. Discipline, hockey, oblivious. There wasn't really any past to him, his whole life has always been hockey, and now his life is hockey and Brenna. Despite it being a dual POV novel, there's no mistaking Brenna as the main character, which I don't hate. I love a man who lets his woman just have all the spotlight, except for that one time he left her in the room with a woman. I don't really love the ending because after all that unnecessary third act breakup shit, they don't even we don't even get to see Brenna and Jake as a real couple again. I hate a third act break, third act breakup, so I left a sour taste in my mouth at the end. Now, is the risk enemy sellers to me? Criteria one, slow burn. There's not really a slow burn between Brenna and Jake, but I think Criteria 1.5 receives it. There was so much tension between the two. Before they even get together, there were a couple scenes where it's like, oh my god. Are they going to kiss or is she going to strangle him? I think what Elle Kennedy did was really smart. She made it obvious from page one that Brenna and Jake were both attractive people and both attracted to each other. It blurs the line even more, making it, ugh, you're so annoying but so hot, which I think is a good dynamic to have in a Silvers, lovers, and I don't really see it that often. Criteria 2, a good reason to hate each other. I think Brenna and Jake having this all-encompassing, all-consuming rivalry is the perfect reason to hate each other three the dynamic doesn't change i love how the banter and teasing continued after they got together one minute they could be making fun of each other the next minute they were kissing and it all made sense because of their dy- dynamic okay set up both of them already finding each other infuriating and attractive for right four it's not retconned hallelujah so in total the risk has gotten 3.5 out of 4.5 very next book i read was the hating game by sally thorne like anyone who's associated with the book community i've heard of the hating game but i've never read it even though i love enemies lovers so i feel apt to read it now the hating game starts with the main characters joshua and lucy engaged in a game how they both know it's a game without ever saying we're playing a game um i don't know spoiler (laughs) i didn't like the book so i'm just gonna go much quicker through this Joshua and Lucy are assistants to the CEO. Yes, that's two CEOs because Lucy's company and Joshua's company have merged. They're virtual opposites and their company is divided into two. People from Joshua's company and people from Lucy's company. Joshua's company is kind of like the more stiff company. They wear suits. They're very much robot-like. They're very much depicted as robot-like. And Lucy is more of the fun-loving, book-loving company. There's a promotion and Joshua and Lucy are both fighting for it. After having a weird sex dream and a kiss with Joshua in the elevator, Lucy attempts to go on a date with Danny, a fellow co-worker, but feels insecure because she thinks he's judging her like Joshua does. She gets sick one weekend, Joshua takes care of her the whole time, never leaving her side. The relationship quickly blooms and they hide it from everyone in of their lives. Lucy believes they just can't F it out, but Joshua doesn't want to yet. Hijinks, yada, 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 they go to Joshua's brother's joshua's brother's wedding we see joshua's family dynamic where his brother is marrying his ex weird and his family sees him as a failure because he's just an assistant to the ceo joshua may say he's always loved lucy (sighs) my god his room is painted blue because of the same blue of her eyes he drops out of the race for the promotion and he gets a job as a at a rival company meaning they continue to be rivals while also being in love this book felt so lackluster after all the hyposing I, I didn't like it at all i can't even mince words i love some moments of the book like if this was in another book it would have been my favorite romance i loved joshua taking care of lucy when she's sick and never leaving her side i love that his room was painted her eye color i have a few times like the banner not always i just hated being in lucy's head she has no reason to hate joshua joshua is a one-note character whose only trait is being buff being stiff and being and liking her sally thorne has this weird writing style that i can't even call purple prose because it's just so filled with metaphors that it takes you out of the story i don't know i've I've heard the movie is better so but we're only reviewing the book so whatever let's get into the criteria criteria one broken they kiss at the kiss is a 20 percent mark and it was a weird kiss it was a weird kiss because i was thinking outside of a romance a small five-foot woman is trapped in an elevator with a guy who she thinks hates her he picks her up places her on the railing pins her there and kisses her without asking i did not like this i feel like the kiss should have come after the after he took care of her the whole weekend and i would have liked it more Broken. There's almost no tension. The only tension comes from a scene where they're making it on a closet and could be caught by their bosses or anyone. 2. Broken. No good reason for them to hate each other besides the murder, but also, they're adults. How are you acting this at your place of work? I work slightly above minimum wage, and I know not to throw insults at my coworker where everyone can see. I do that in my head, or I do it on your phone to my boyfriend. This office setting just makes them feel... It makes it also weird because they seem so immature for their age. Criteria three partially broken. Their dynamics, just really light insults, so it doesn't change much. Criteria four broken. It gets retconned at the end, and Joshua is the Lord. Why Sally Thorne? So the hating game gets a .5 out of four point five. <laughs> the last book I read was *Pride and Prejudice* by Jane Austen. I try to get different types of enemies to lovers for this episode. Red White and Royal Blue is a queer romance. The Risk is college sports romance. The Hating Game is Office. And Pride and Prejudice is a classic. As I said in the beginning, I love the 2005 adaptation with Kira Knightley. So I had high expectations. If you've seen the adaptation, it's pretty one-to-one. But maybe it's the language. So, But it just felt like so distant from me. Is the truth universally acknowledged? a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife it's the early 1800s the bennett family's lives are shaken up by a new arrival in their town the young rich and unmarried mr bingley is a new addition mrs bennett's desire is to marry off all five of her daughters which is presented as overbearing but i think makes sense because it's the 1800s and she already knows that none of her daughters will get her husband's home so she's just trying to ensure that they're set up for life At the ball, the Bennets meet Mr. Bingley. Mr. Bingley is instantly enamored with Jane, the eldest Bennet. Bingley is accompanied by his sisters and a Mr. Darcy. Darcy is unlikable and Elizabeth immediately dislikes him when he declines to dance with her. After a very long time of Elizabeth and Darcy interacting and bickering because of the proximity to Bingley and Jane, Bingley and his crew suddenly leave with no plans to come back. Before they leave, Elizabeth learns from a soldier named Wickham that Darcy has hurt Wickham and essentially ruined his life. Elizabeth believes this without any proof. After a while, she meets again with Darcy and he proposes to her. She immediately rejects him, upset that he was behind Bingley's sudden disappearance and caused Jane pain, as well as uprooting Wickham's entire life. Elizabeth writes, Darcy writes Elizabeth a letter explaining everything his relationship with Wickham and his reasons for separating Jane and Bingley. Months later, Liz meets Darcy again. She's sees him differently now, but any serious conversation is killed when Liz learns that her younger sister Lydia has run away with Wickham. This will ruin their entire family's prospects of marriage, basically ruining their lives because, remember, it's the 1800s? After some tense dates where no one knows what's going to happen, Wickham agrees to marry Lydia, restoring their family's reputation. After finding out that Darcy helped arrange the marriage, Elizabeth realizes that she loves Darcy. And has been blinded by her pride and prejudice. Get it? <laughs> Bingley returns to propose to Jane and she accepts. Darcy proposes to Elizabeth again and she accepts. Now is this, one of the first of the genre truly an enemies to lovers according to me. One, slow burn. I don't know if it's a language, but this was the slowest of all slow burns. There was just so much conversation. The movie had me thinking there was so much more romantic tension there were just people talking about marriage prospects and where the next ball would be. Partier one, met begrudgingly. <laughs> 1.5, tension, not met Again, it could be the language, but I didn't feel much tension between Darcy and Elizabeth. They were, had actually quite few scenes where it was just them and any other scene that they had in a group. They were just throwing jabs at each other and it didn't have the tension of, oh, you're so infuriating, but you're so attractive. It just had the vibe of, I don't like you. <laughs> cartier too good reason this is a perfect reason which i would absolutely not accept in modern novels now elizabeth believe as elizabeth believes that darcy sees himself as above them which he does but essentially it's all about a bad first impression which is why i wouldn't accept it in modern novels just talk i think the regency era dynamics of men and women not really communicating unless they're courting or through letters or in a big group makes the first impression very different they can't just talk like we do now that's not proper that's not how things are done three dynamic cannot change not met we don't see them post-marriage so we have no idea if the dynamic changes or not four they actually hate each other met they hate each other from the beginning Liz found Darcy to be too stock up and Darcy found Liz too improper they barely wanted to be in each other's presence in total pride and prejudice gets three out of 4.5 honestly these books had me questioning if I even like Enemy Celebrities anymore. I used to think it was my favorite trope, and I feel so hollow now. I read four books and I just felt meh for all of them. Where was the passion? It's all gone. And I was going to read From Blood and Ash by Jennifer L. Armentrout for this episode, but I just couldn't read any more disappointing anymore. Enemy Celebrities and get more and more disappointed. Before this, the last Enemies to Lovers I read was Much Ado About Nothing about like four months ago. And before that, it was Icebreaker back in February of this year. I loved both of those. They had passion, they had banter, they had character growth, and they felt like Enemies to Lovers to me. I don't know if it was because I was just reading these back to back, but these all felt like books with the Enemies to Lovers trope and not actual Enemies to Lovers books, if that makes sense. I was going to read the Spanish Love Deception as well. I've heard so many mixed reviews that I just... I don't want to read it all these books even though they like like pnp and the risk just seems to be missing the extra oomph like uh 100k wattpad fan used to give me back in the day if you have any recommendations that fit my criteria let me know i would love to read them and maybe do a part two to this thank you for listening i've been your host astrid owen see you soon Thank you for listening to No Shelf Control. You can follow me on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at Astrid S. Owen. You can also follow me on Instagram at noshelfcontrol.pod. See you soon.